Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm joined by the immovable object. Well, it appears to be immovable because he's always in my ass. Peter Hart. Nearly called you Peter Smith then. Peter Smith's lovely. Yeah. Well, he's never been my ass. You'd think not, but he's a Royal Marine. He could have snuck in. Before we start, I'd just like to say that uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, and apparently there's one or two people that do. Yeah, there was three last time I heard. Um, you might be interested to know that we are, uh, are now launching, launching. Our, our new book, Laugh or Cry, The British Soldier on the Western Front, 1914-1918, by holding a conference in East Finchley, East Finchley at the Constitutional Club. Uh, and details are on social media. Yeah, it's on the 11th of November and we'll have special guests, uh, really special guests. Uh, uh, Richard Van Emden will be talking, as will Taff Gillingham and Alex Churchill will be the compare. And I'm sure bringing a, a touch of uh, light humour to proceed. And us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and us. <laughs> Normally it's you that forgets us. Uh, we'll be talking about the book. So if you're interested, have a look on social media and you'll see the details. It's £22 for the event, uh, but you do then get a free book signed by us. Or £25 if you'd like one unsigned. Yeah, buggy you. Right, so today then, Pete. What are we doing today, Gary? Uh, it's the Battle of Amiens, which was the 8th of August 1918. So a bit of a shift for us. Yeah, and before we start, we want to make it quite clear that we are well aware that the Battle of Amiens, although to the British incredibly important, it is not the be-all and end-all of what's going on in the Western Front. The French had already taken a massive first step uh, with uh, with the, uh, the the Second Battle of the Marne. Uh, around about the 18th of July. So that's worth bearing in mind. We know that, and we might even come back to that. But this is a talk about the British Battle of Amiens, although the French are in that as well. The French get everywhere, have you noticed? Yeah, and it is, of course, the 8th of August, and we'll come on to why that might be important and what Mr Ludendorff... Mr Ludendorff? (laughs) Mr Ludendorff has to say about that. Anyway! Anyway! not, Not too many quotes today, Pete, so we better get on. 
Yep. So the the British Army, uh, they, 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 they'd been under the cosh in the German spring offensives, but by the time they got to early summer, they were having a little bit of a, a relief because uh, uh, they knew the Germans planned a massive uh, attack in Flanders, the Friedensturm, uh, but only if they could manoeuvre the situation where the British reserves were sent south. Uh, and both Haig and Foch were too, just too canny to do that. Um, they wouldn't fall into the sort of bear trap Ludendorff had set for them. Mr. So, sorry, it's Mr. Ludendorff. Uh, so you've got this situation where the, 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 the offensives are going in around, uh, Reims and the rest of it. Uh, there's lots of things happening, the May offensives. Uh, but, but, um, in a sense, uh, except for three or four divisions, it wasn't really affecting us as much. So what do you think is happening? What, uh, uh, there's well, a bit of a lull. What happens? Well, in effect, Ludendorff and the Germans ran out of steam long before they could make his desired final push on the Channel ports. Now, in the meantime, General Sir Henry Rawlinson, who was commanding the 4th Army in the Somme area, uh, he began to reorganise his defences. And what does he notice, Gary? You know, as age uh organising it? Well, he becomes slowly aware that the German army in front of them was strangely in- inactive. And uh, they seemed, for the Germans particularly, strangely lethargic. They, they just seem strange to you, don't they? <laughs> well, here's some of the things they did. For example, they organised a forward zone, but it was weak. Often, just a single trench with a conspicuous lack of the masses of barbed wire to channel the attackers into their machine guns. And that's not all. There the, the weren't the, the layers of, uh, of uh, conc- uh, reinforced concrete pillboxes. Uh, why do you think that might have been? Well, the Germans lacked the time or the resources to build such a, a, a construction. Well, it, just, it takes time to build a pillbox, doesn't it? It does. And there's no, also, the third point is there's no properly defined battle or rear zone. Uh, they, 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 they're just badly organised. Now, who would be aware of this sort of thing? Well, the RAF, you know, we, we mentioned before, they zealously flew photographic reconnaissance missions, checking out the German fortifications. And as soon as it became apparent that they lacked strength and any defensive subtlety, now, they haven't realised that the, the British might attack, and, and so, so they've done little or nothing. Um, but this is a symptom of more. Uh, the, the, the poor defensive arrangements in the Somme area, there's a, a more serious underlying malaise going on in the German army. What would you say that was it? What's, what's at the root of it? Well, it's that their nation had reached the end of its long rope. You had, for example, the naval blockade, and that was rotting Germany from the inside. Rather unfortunate phrase, but that's true. There were uh, food shortages. They were endemic. Uh, Rather appropriate word, given, given our recent experiences. The raw materials of industry... They'd all but run out. Yeah, but that's not all. The raw material of the, of the army, uh, young men, uh, they're in dreadfully short supply. And the Germans had already called up for training, boys born in 1899. Uh, what else is to come? Well, there wouldn't be much more to come but children, old men, and the returning drafts of patched up wounded. And what, what, what is another problem with the new drafts coming to the front? Well, <laughs> they were often unenthusiastic. Lacking, <laughs> bloody <see what. laughs> yeah, lacking any martial spirit 
or air of common purpose, bringing depressing news of the state of the homeland for whom they were fighting. Now, the German divisions on the Somme front had also been weakened by several things. For a start, and, and this is one of the problems with having elite stormtrooper formations, is that they, they, they sieved out the best soldiers from the normal divisions to go to these elite formations. What effect does that have on the normal divisions? Well, it certainly weakens them. But in addition, they'd all nearly all recently been through the mill of battle. And the best divisions had already gone south to, to take part in the attacks on the French. Uh, so what was left was a poor fighting strength. Uh, what, what about, there's another, you mentioned the, the food situation at home. What about the food situation at the front? Well, German rations didn't have the calories to keep body and soul together. We need a lot of calories. <laughs> particularly if hard physical labour was required. Oh, don't want to do that, do we? But in addition they're becoming aware of the arrival of the American army in real strength. Yeah, th- th- I mean, that was one of the triggers for the spring and early summer offences was that they knew that the American army would be present in real strength from the high summer of 1918. And it was. There was a, a, a by there then, there's sort of a million uh, there. Uh, now, so uh, so this is a situation uh, on the Somme front. So, so what does Henry Rawlinson do about it? Well, he becomes aware of the opportunities that lay before him, given the poor quality German troops and a lack of properly constructed And what defenses. does he do, Gary? Well, what he resolved he do? to test the water, Ooh. which I was about to say. Oh, yeah. And he asked the Australian Corps commander, Lieutenant General Sir John Monash and Brigadier General Anthony Courage of the 5th Brigade Tank Corps to prepare a local attack to straighten the line at the village of Hamel. Now, these plans are quite controversial to, to in some ways because they're often erroneously held to be the blueprint for the all-arms battle uh, that would, uh, that, you know, that's the culmination of British offensive tactics that were developed in the, in the Great War. But it's nothing really to do with Monash, is it? He's a, 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 a or even courage. Well, well, what is it? What, is, what does the all-arms battle represent? Well, in fact, this was part of a gigantic effort spearheaded by GHQ and the stationary service pamphlets. SS pamphlets. <laughs> that summed up established best practice. Rawlinson himself in June 1918 expressed a belief that firepower would have to replace manpower as a dominant consideration in preparing attack. And this is what General Sir Henry Rawlinson of Headquarters 4th Army says. All possible mechanical devices in order to increase the offensive power of our divisions. The only two directions in which such developments can reasonably be expected are, one, the increase of machine guns, Lewis guns and automatic rifles, and two, the increase of numbers and functions of tanks. So he's completely grasped the, the mechanical war is coming upon them. Yeah, but the remarks are also being made against the background of a serious manpower shortage. The British Army was a shrinking force. Well, even though they'd at last sent replacement divisions and drafts to the Western Front, gathering them up from home, the drafts, but also sending them in from Palestine, Mesopotamia, all over the place. Uh, but there was still a shrinkage in the size of units because uh, of the terrible casualties in the spring offensives. So what did Monash encourage? What sort of a plan did they come up with? Well, the plan that they produced in accordance with the new tactics had uh, no preliminary bombardment as the guns would be pre-calibrated and then they'd shoot from the map, just as they'd done at Cambrai 
in November 1917. So then a thunderous barrage, uh, especially by the heavy artillery, would crash down on all the previously identified German artillery batteries, strong points, headquarters, communication centres. And, and, and at the same time, something crucial, what would that be? The tanks and infantry would go over the top and they'd be preceded by a creeping barrage of 60% shrapnel, 30% high explosive and 10% smoke shells to suppress the fire of any surviving German machine gunners who would be lurking in the shell holes. Blimey. In addition, there'd be further barrages of 4.5 and 6-inch howitzers falling on the designated strong points. So this was how the Battle of, 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 of Hamel commenced at 0310 on the 4th of July, 1918. And, and how did it go? Well, it, it was an outstanding success. The German troops in the area were swept aside. The British heavy artillery effectively silenced the German guns. The field artillery's creeping barrage chaperoned the advancing infantry and tanks right up to and over the German defences. The marauding tanks and infantry dealt with any pockets of resistance. So the village of Hamel, it's captured, uh, uh, and there was an overall advance of 2,000 yards. That's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, the demor- demoralised Germans, they surrender en masse. Uh, and, and what happened to those that didn't? Well, those that didn't are mostly killed or wounded. Allied casualties numbered around about a 1,000. The Germans lost the best part of 2,500. That's not bad odds uh, in an attritional battle such as a Great War by any standards. Now, uh, so how did uh, Hamel react? Uh, how did it... Uh, what, what impact did it have? How did uh, Rawlinson think it had gone? Well, it certainly further encouraged him. The British lines were still far too close to the strategically significant railway centre at Amiens, Oh, you mean? Oh, I see what you mean. What? Uh, they, they, they were only just in front of it. So if the Germans got any further, they could take it. So yeah. they wanted some room to clear it away. Yeah, there so. was a long-standing desire for a counterattack to clear the Germans back. Now the Australians they continued their policy of regular raids on the German lines, and it was apparent that the Germans had still failed to address the issue of a proper defensive system. Now. Uh, Rawlinson's plans uh, very quickly, uh, but in his accordance with the overall. Uh, doctrine, isn't it? And uh, Rawlinson submits his plans to Hague on the 17th of July, 1918. That's only two weeks later. And when you think of how long these things uh, take. So so what was the overall outline of the plans? Well, the 4th Army would attack in three stages. What are they? The first would overrun the German frontline system to a distance of about 2,500 yards at most. Now, the second would be carried out by fresh divisions, leapfrogging to, to, get, to seize a further 3,000 yards. That's 5,500 in total. Well done. Maths with Pete and Gary. Uh, third stage? Well, after a brief pause, it entailed them pushing forward to capture the old outer Amiens defence line running through Pruyar. And then consolidation uh, uh, to, exp- uh, to, 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 to hold the new front and uh, any exposed uh, flanks. Of course, if you push forward, you've got uh, open flanks. Um, so Haig accepts this plan, but somebody doesn't. And it's time to point out that by this time, we had an allied supreme commander. Who was that, Gary? Who was it? Well, General Ferdinand Foch, and he didn't accept as, as allied supreme commander. He intervened to enlarge the general scope of the operation by including a simultaneous offensive by General Marie de French First Army, which was to the immediate south, 
and they were placed under Hay's command for the duration of the attack. So this is Allied High Command working together in harmony here. So the attack was... Uh, now, this attack, let's get... It's to be made by the same 4th Army under the same general, Rawlinson, as... Had, uh, when had they, uh, when had they done this before? What, what date? What, when? I think it's just got in the same place. Well, they'd consti- conspicuously failed on the 1st of July 1916. But really, Pete, it's the same army in name only. And to be fair, it's not quite the same place. It's a generic Somme front, but it's, it's, uh, south of it. So, yeah. Um, now there's one big feature of that, that, so, you know, if you do a quiz, which is the biggest tank battle of the war, everyone will say, oh, come on, break. It's not, is it, Gary? No, this was going to be the biggest tank battle of the war, employing 324 heavy tanks, 96 light whippet tanks, and 120 supply tanks. Now, they'd worked out simple tank tactics. You know, one would go over and turn left, one would go over and turn right there, you know, all this usual thing. But what's one of the big problems with tanks working with infantry? Well, communication problems. It, it, they dogged the tanks at every level. It was difficult for the crew to hear each other inside the excessively So never mind tanks. communicating outside the tank, it's difficult inside the tank. No, they couldn't effectively communicate with nearby tanks or infantry when in battle. And they could not maintain any kind of contact with the supporting artillery or the generals behind the lines. Yeah, so they're, well, how, they're a blunt weapon, blunt-edged weapon, aren't they? Yeah, uh, but their purpose was really clear. What? Well, firstly... They'd flatten any barbed wire defences. So that's why you don't have to have the the long preliminary barrage. Then they were to root out and destroy any machine gun post or stronghold that was holding up the infantry. Now, there's something else that's new, which I particularly find interesting because it's about logistics. Our old friend Rob Thompson would point this out as important. What what special kind of it? Because you, you mentioned three types of tanks. What was the third? Well, they'd introduced uh, a, the carrier tank. And it was charged with taking forward the huge amounts of fuel and ammunition that would be needed to replenish the tanks and infantry units when they had reached their objectives. <laughs> Loading these machines was a tricky matter, for each was to carry 400 gallons of fuel, 20,000 rounds of small ammunition, and 200 rounds of six-pounder shells. It'd be a good target as well. God, could you imagine? Yeah, if something hit it. Uh, now, so uh, what about so that's the uh, the tanks. What about the artillery? Uh, by the summer of nineteen, where are we with the artillery? Well, by then they they had uh, a complete theoretical and pra- practical grip on the science of gunnery. Their contribution would be utterly crucial to any chances of so, Wilson. So, what have we got? We've got no preliminary bombardment uh, that from all the batteries at Rawlinson and Fourth Army at a mass. Uh, they they. They, they they did not have to destroy the German trenches before a successful attack would have to be. Um, what what do, so they don't have to destroy them? What am I talking about? What do they have to do? Well, the main, if not the only, criteria was that the defenders' artillery and machine guns had to be suppressed. Now, suppression means that they had to be stopped from firing, which could be done in many ways. Yeah, one is destroyed. One is to destroy them, but others are, are to uh, well. What's the best way of doing? What have, what have they worked out was the best way? Well, at the moment of the attack, a veritable torrent of gas shells and high explosives would descend onto the German artillery batteries, preventing them from firing. So, if, I mean, gas in particular, you have to put your gas mask on, which means you can't hear, can't think. You would use the phrase embuggerment. I would. They would be embuggered. Yeah, and any vigorous physical act- activity would be difficult. And actually, the levels of gas would sometimes swamp the masks. 
Um, so uh, now, so so let's talk about the creeping barrage. These are these are not just one-liner shells. Now they're complex. No, and they at the same time they would creep across no man's land with the at- uh, attacking infantry, keeping as close to it as they dared. In fact. Many preferred to accept the risk of being hit by their own shells to the chance of letting the German machine gunners emerge from their dugouts before they'd been overrun. Well, I could see that because you might have one or two casualties from shells, but if the uh, if the machine gunners get get up before you've got to them, they're, they're going to cut you to ribbons. Uh, now, so I suppose we'd learn to all this from these stormtroopers and the German spring offences. I suppose because we British can only copy, can't we? No. They'd had their own superior techniques dating way back to 1917. Yeah, and you know something? If we'd copied anyone, we'd copied the French. Yeah, oh. the artillery preparations, they're enormous. The the surveyors had given them the accurate maps they needed of the Somme battlefield. So they could That's shoot. crucial. They, they had, so they could shoot by the map. That allows the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the bombardment to just open up. Um, but that's not all. The, the guns have to be carefully moved up and, and ca- no one must see them and camouflage. What else do guns need? Huge quantities of ammunition. More than, more than three? More than three. And every gun had recently been tested and adjusted on the army calibration range. So when they opened up, they'd hit what they were aiming at and they wouldn't have to, to, to range in. Uh, right. No, but- and all the gun sites, they'd test them again on the night before zero hour. And uh, what about uh, the, the, some, the science of gunning? What else have they learned? Well, and, and again, I seem to recall us talking about this previously uh, and, and why it was so important. The meteorological section would supply the data they, that would allow the gunners to adjust for changes in pressure, temperature and wind strength. All of which uh, affect the flight of a shell and where it lands. Well, 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 well. Um, meanwhile, what, the, every German artillery battery was being l- located. Uh, it wasn't a quick process, was it? So who was doing most of that? Well, the RAF flew innumerable photo reconnaissance missions, which, along with the sound ranging and flash spotting teams, identified most of the German batteries. How many? Well, this is really impressive. 504 of the 530 German guns in the area of operations were correctly identified. What percentage terms would that be, Gary? 95%. It's just what it says. I hope it is now. It's just what it says in these notes. (laughs) Yes. Now, the German artillery, they'd be almost completely neutralised when the battle opened. So, So what sort of level of guns are we deploying? Well, in the end, the Royal Artillery deployed a total of 1,386 field guns and howitzers with 684 heavy artillery pieces. Now, the, the field artillery would have 500 to 600 shells per gun. The heavier pieces, 400 shells per gun. Um, there's plenty here, not only to saturate the German batteries, but also to provide a truly staggering creeping barrage running in front of the infantry. Um in some ways, it's all become a bit scientific. In what, 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 what am I thinking here? Well, you're you're referring to the number of guns needed to neutralise a given number of batteries or frontage of trench, uh, which had been reduced to a mathematical formula, and the required guns moved up ready for action. It may not have been romantic or heroic, but it was war, and the Royal Artillery was ready for war. 
Now, uh, the RAF, uh, now we've mentioned the RAF a couple of times. People must say, what happened to that lovely old Royal Flight Corps? Well, on the 1st of April 1918, it became with the Royal Naval Air Service, the uh, RAF. Um, uh, now, what were they doing? What was, what was their role in the all arms battle? Because they have a, they're, 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 they're the newest service, but they really have a big job. Yeah, they're brought right into the heart of the all arms battle. The RAF have got to carry out its own reconnaissance work uh, whilst at the same time, its scouts have got to prevent the German reconnaissance aircraft from penetrating the British rear. Nothing worse than your rear being penetrated uh, unexpectedly. Um, now, uh, on the day itself, they'd had, they, 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 this is the positive nature of things now. They would attack every German airfield and try and neutralise suppress if you like the german air force um when the actual assault started on the ground what would the raf have to do then well they'd then have to fly contact patrols monitoring the progress of the infantry drawing attention to hold-ups and bringing down deadly concentrations of extra artillery fire wherever required that's sort of zone call thing that would be a say a battery or a, counter, a german counterattack. wow what would the scout squadrons be doing they're, they're less important but they've still got a big role haven't they yeah they've got to deal with any german aircraft appearing over the front and also they engaged in low-level ground strafing along the line and back along the lines of communication. Bombers, well, this is less important, but uh, what are bombers well, doing? It's early days for bombers. It's early it? days, but they're trying to destroy the railway lines that would channel in the German reserves to cut off the battlefield from any reinforcements, at least in the short term. Now there's a posh military term for that sort of operation. Can you remember what it is? Embuggerment. <laughs> Interdiction. <laughs> It's got got dicks in it. <laughs> Embuggerment. Oh, God. <laughs> Moving on. By the late summer of 1918, the Allies were now so strong that they could amass a huge aerial armada over the Somme without unduly, or at least obviously, weakening of their strength elsewhere along the line. So what? how many? What are we talking about? Well, the RAF amassed no less than 800 Army cooperation aircraft, scouts, day bombers, night bombers, and long-range reconnaissance aircraft for the battle. That's not all. There's somebody else involved. Who's that? Because the French are involved as well. How many have they got there? Well, the French uh, added a further 1,104 aircraft, which That's makes more. a combined total of 1,904 Allied aircraft. The Germans, they had a mere 365 aircraft immediately available. That's, near, that's around 1,600 less. That, that's a hell of a bloody difference, isn't it? One a day. <laughs> that... Now, um, so, um, so, does that put you off, Pete? Yes, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm stumbling here. Um, but now, who is the central figure of the all arms battle? We've got all these complicated things. We've got gunners, we've got, uh, flying corps, we've got, we've got things. Well, well who's at the center, tanks? Who's at the center of it all? We've got things, yes. Uh, the infantry. The infantry soldier may be caricatured as a humble resource. I'm a humble resource. A, oh, a sweating, farting, moaning and cursing anachronism. You are! <laughs> in the mechanical war, but they still utter, uh, are utterly irreplaceable in 1918. Or indeed, any time since. Now, this is the, the, the phrase you... I'm just writing a book on the infantry in the Second World War. It's to be called foot sluggers. And you put the phrase which I put in, uh, boots on the ground. It's the same then, now, and it, or I suspect it of, always will be. Yeah. Uh, what, what do the infantry have to do? Why, 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 why do we talk about boots on the ground? Well, they're the ones that have got to capture, occupy, and retain the object objective the infantry of 1914 they'd have been recognized by napoleon or wellington 
But those of 1918, they're a completely different beast. Well, let's have a break. While we think about uh, the sweating, farting, moaning, complaining Gary, uh, so we'll have a short break to consider that while we perhaps have an advert. Hey, Gary? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, now we left uh, speaking about the infantry. Infantry tactics had also come a long way since the Somme in July 1916. Gone were the long lines of infantry plodding forwards to endure unsuppressed German machine gun and artillery fire. Yeah, now we had, uh, instead, in front, they'd have advanced scouts pushed ahead some 150 yards ahead of the main line. Uh, it lines the wrong term, but the main body of infantry. Uh, they're working closely with the tanks who are just, just behind the creeping barrage. Uh, these men, uh, the, the, to use a, a hunting, uh, shooting and fishing analogy, uh, I'd say these men were acting as beaters, identifying possible surviving German machine gun posts pointing them out where possible to the, to the tanks so they could destroy them. Now, what comes behind this? Let's call it a screen. What become, comes behind it? Well, behind that would be the main body of the battalion. Are they in a big line? Attacking on a two-company front with the men strung out in worms of six to eight men moving forward in single file between 30 and 60 yards between worms. Now, this was designed to minimise the effects of being caught in the open by either machine gun or artillery fire. Sounds quite modern. Um yeah, it is quite modern. Now, behind the leading battalions, the supporting battalion would advance in artillery formation of platoons in fire. Uh, what would they be carrying? Well, 
this really is a change. The troops are, are going to be carrying the bare minimum of equipment required. The battalion was no longer the fighting unit. This had dropped to the company, the platoon, and was now the section. Uh, what were they armed with? This is the big change from 1914. Well, oh, no, 19... they're, they're still armed with the 303 Lee Enfield rifle. Fine gun, fine rifle. There are also now numerous Lewis gunners to provide concentrated support fire, Stokes mortars and rifle brigades to, to uh, rifle grenades to mimic artillery fire and hand grenades for clearing out enclosed spaces. In the last result, or more frequently if the enemy had actually already surrendered, then they had their trusty bayonet. Now, they, they, they were trained in a flexible combination of these various weapons at their hand. Uh, they, 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 whatever happened, they, they work to, to, to overcome obstacles that just flummox their 1916 counterparts. Uh, but in uh, addition, when real problems arose, they then had access to, to support. Tanks were usually available to provide immediate assistance, while if a problem endured, they could call for additional support from the Vickers machine guns, heavy mortars and even low-flying aircraft. Wow. That, that, so they're still at the centre of all the, the battle tactics, uh, and, and but they're, they're, they're sort of the, let's describe it in posh way, they're a pivotal force around which all the firepower could be deployed. Yes. Now... In addition, the cavalry corps may have been an oh, old. Oh, Gary, arm. the cavalry's use. Everyone knows there's no use for cavalry. Gary, Gary. The cavalry corps may have been an old arm that was no longer of the first relevance, but it still had a theoretical role in Rawlison's all arms pains. Uh, if, and it was a big if, the Germans collapsed to create an exploitable gap, then the cavalry was to charge through, overran the German artillery, and then attacking the neighbouring Germans from the rear. Now, that's not terribly likely, but the other point about the cavalry, which we always make, is it's the only fast-moving force on the battlefield. It was the only thing that they could send to to uh, to, to, to do something that... Where, if a situation arose suddenly, it's the only fast-moving thing they've got. Well, the modern cavalry... The light whippet tanks, they were to be used alongside their predecessors in this frankly unlikely scenario. The cavalryman was still substantially faster moving than the whippet, while at the same time being considerably more vulnerable to machine gun uh, and uh, barbed wire. I don't see how this is going to work. Um, uh, with the di- di- communication, different speeds of, of uh, it, it must have been very, very difficult. Um, so, so these, so, so funny enough, the, the fast exploitation area is still not really there. Neither tanks nor cavalry can really perform the role, can they? So th- there is a problem with fast exploitation of gaps. Uh, l- let's move on to one last ingredient of the all arms battle, which I think often pe- people forget. Or, or if they don't forget it, they're bloody well insulting, rude and violently abusive about. Who, what am I on about now? The general officers and their staff. It's they who coordinated the whole combined effort. The tactics to be employed on the 8th of August, they, they didn't come from just one fertile brain. You mean it wasn't Haig or Monash or Curry? Well, it wasn't any one individual. They were hammered out by a veritable army of staff officers. The tactics in every attack over the previous years had been analysed, every technology closely evaluated and scrutinised in an effort to place them within the overall battle plan as defined in the field service regulations. Which Haig did have something to do with the field service regulations of 1909. But nevertheless, it is. He is an enabler. 
uh, with lots and lots of staff officers. Yes. Now, what else? Uh, what else? Uh, staff officers, specialists. Uh, these people. These big brained people. Very unlike ourselves. What? What? What, are, what else do they do? Well, they bent their minds to refining, refining and improving the killing power of weapons and their most effective methods of employment. Whether it was aircraft, thermite bombs, gas shells, tanks, or machine guns. Staff officers arranged everything for the coming battle. Yeah, the that, maps, I mean, they do. Yeah, the maps, roads. Well, they didn't arrange the roads, but uh, they certainly made sure that they were uh, passable. Yeah. The railways, complex movement plans. Let's not forget the accommodation of all the extra to- troops, troops, the food and water supplies, medical arrangements for the treatment of the wounded and the cages for the German prisoners. And I suppose they had to do all this without attracting too much attention from our good friends, the German army, who are always willing to in any way disrupt anything. Well, yeah, you're quite right. Throughout the whole of the planning and the preparation, secrecy was an obsession with Rawlington and the staff. Uh, now, this is quite funny because I've seen some of the documents in the Imperial War Museum uh, and... Uh, Everyone knew something was coming big was happening. But on all the documents, there was this phrase. Go on, read it to me, Gary. What's the phrase? Keep your mouth shut. How many times have you said that to me? Twice today. The planning and uh, concomitant arrangements proceeded smoothly. You've done that on purpose. You've absolutely done that on purpose. Foch was pushing Haig hard. He wanted the operation to start as soon as possible and he wanted to go as far as possible without becoming too vulnerable to counterattack. Why? What's going on? What, what, what is what is it in the background? Why is Foch push, push, pushing Haig? Well, he was increasingly of the opinion that the Germans were breaking up and wanted to capitalise on that and keep up the momentum. Well, in some ways, he's right, isn't he? Now, uh, well, how did Haig respond to this uh, push, push, pushy well, he didn't need uh, a lot of urging. He was, by nature, a man that always took an optimistic view of the prospects of any offensive. And, you know, some people have denigrated him for that. Now, what happens is that there's a, a last-minute extension of their objectives for the for the Battle of Amiens, 20 miles deeper to Ham. Does this really affect the planning process? No, not at all. The only real impact would be that if progress to the distant objectives stalled, then the battle could degenerate in its later stages into uh, an attritional stalemate as the Germans brought up their reserves and consolidated their Well, this is, we'll come back to this because this is a key point of the later stage of the battle. Now, so here we are. We've got the two, the two fighters facing each other in the ring of battle. Yeah, and on paper, the two sides facing each other in the Battle of Amiens were of a relatively equal strength as far as a simplistic count of the immediately available divisions one, was concerned. Two, three. But, but one division isn't like another division. One British... What's the difference? Well, yet for all the manpower problems endemic amongst the British divisions, the German divisions were in a far more parlous state, many being reduced to between three to 4,000 men. It comes down to, in the end, and I'm, sl- I'm slightly dubious about some of these figures, uh, there's a basic superior to- superiority of three to one. Uh, three to two. Three to two. Sorry. I meant three to two. You see how I was doubtful about the figure before? Yeah. Three to two over the Germans. Um, that's not exactly convincing. I can remember another battle uh, when there was a massive uh, British superiority in numbers. You mean like- July the 1st, 1916? Yeah. So it's a bit, so there's still plenty to, to worry about. Who is going to carry out this attack? Who's going to do it? Well, it would be a, a combination of French, 
Canadian, Australian and British troops. I just want to make it quite clear, with the exception of the French, all the rest of those are part of the British Army. Because yes. uh, uh, some people seem to think that they're not, but they are. You mean the French aren't part of the British Army? The French are definitely not part of it, although we'd like them to be. On the right, there was the French First Army who deployed their 9th and the 21st Corps, although General Debonet had ordered his men to delay going over the top for 45 minutes after their British neighbours. And even then, they were only to push on if the British were successful. That's uh, that's quite interesting. It strikes me there's a discernible lack of confidence amongst yeah. the French generals. Uh, um, this is despite the urging they're getting from the impatient Foch. Yes, so remember, Foch is French as well. Uh, this is what... But, but he's sort of going... Uh, but they're not... Um, they're, they're, in essence, they're, because they're going in echelon, if you like, on the right, they're, they're almost a, a flank guard covering the right of the advancing Fourth Army. But that's a valuable role in itself. And as the battle goes on, they, they get more and more involved. So who's on the right of the British Fourth Army? Well, that uh, the right was made up of the magnificent Canadian Corps, which was commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Arthur Curry. Uh, and they were attacking on the front between the Roy Amiens Road and the Villers-Shawns Railway. Now, um, they'd had a bad time in the, the closing stage of the Third Battle of Ypres, and, and they, but they were the ones who finally captured Passchendaele Ridge. Um, but since then, how had Haig handled the Canadians? Well, he, he, he'd been very careful about that, and he was determined to retain them as a, a strike formation. Now, who's next in line uh, to, to their left or uh, north of them? Well, that's the well. It's the equally uh, magnificent Australian Corps uh, under um, uh, Lieutenant General Sir John Monash. Um, now, where are they attacking? You get the chance to say Chorn again. Yeah, they they're attacking between the Villas Chorn's Railway and the Somme River. Now, um, again. They, too, had been carefully husbanded by Haig. Uh, they were his reserve of last resort or as the basis of any future counterattack, which, of course, this was. And what's one thing that people sometimes forget about the, an Australian or Canadian division? Well, they're still made up on the old 12 battalions per division scale, which contrasts to the nine battalions uh, in, in a British division. Now, finally, on the left, or the north, there's the third corps under the command of Lieutenant General Sir Richard Butler. Now, where are they attacking? They've got a real bastard job. Yeah, they're going to attack over the valleys and spurs. I hate spurs. Between the Somme and Ancre rivers. Butler's corps was far more typical of the general state of the British Army. The divisions that made up his ranks had been through the mill since the 21st of March. And it was thus unfortunate that they had by far the most difficult ground to we'll, overcome. We'll come back to this when we analyse the results. I feel I feel sorry for third corps. Now, uh, the Royal Artillery, uh, what, what a job they did, didn't they, Gary? I mean, they really are. the Ubiquay. Ubiquay, and they had good reason to be satisfied with their exhausted preparations when the guns fired with the most boom, enormous roar boom, at the appointed boom, zero hour of boom. 0420. It was a stunning boom. barrage the distillation of all that had been learnt during the war. Now, you're going to be Lieutenant General Sir John Monash, uh, Australian Corps. What did he say about this barrage? And suddenly, with a mighty roar, more than a thousand guns begin the symphony. A great illumination lights up the eastern horizon, and instantly the whole complex organisation, extending far back to areas almost beyond earshot of the guns, begins to move forward. Every man, every unit, 
every vehicle and every tank on the appointed tasks and to their designated goals, sweeping on relentlessly and irresistibly. Viewed from a high vantage point and in the glimmer of the breaking day, a great artillery barrage surely surpasses in dynamic splendour any other manifestation of collective human effort. Well, other than the recent victory by England over New Zealand. Obviously. Now, um, well, what's happening to the infantry? Well, so the, 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 the artillery barrages burst forth in a most god-awful, bloody racket and destructive effort, and, and, a, and, a, and a creeping barrage starts to move. What are the infantry doing? Well, they had to endure the long wait for zero hour, lying for up to five hours on their starting line tapes until at last the roar of the barrage sent shells skimming over their heads to crash down just in front of them in no man's land. As their creeping barrage began, it was their moment of truth. Close by, the leading tanks were ready to rumble forwards in synchronicity, almost blindly feeling their way ahead to crush the barbed wire. Blind is a good word for tanks. Uh, uh, They really can see bugger all from inside them. Uh, Now, they're easy targets as they cross no man's land, uh, but uh, the German counter-barrage is a, a, a complete and utter failure. Why is that? Well... Hammered as they were by the British shells falling all around their battery positions, they did not make any kind of a response onto the British frontline trenches until five minutes after the zero hour. It's not long. It's long enough. It's far too late. The troops and tanks were well on their way across no man's land. Then, before any range corrections could be made, the German guns were liberally doused by the country battery fire of the British. And a lot of the German guns had already been taken out. It's, uh, so the creeping barrage is moving just ahead. A wall of shells gradually lengthening the range, uh, just, just moving ahead of the tanks and leading troops. Uh, what's the job of the infantry? Well, Canadian, Australian and British infantry had to keep in touch with the tanks and the barrage if they were not to find themselves isolated on the battlefield. Even a matter of minutes could see the Germans emerge from their hiding places to set up their machine guns and wreak an awful vengeance. Yeah, but as long as they kept up close, the the, the Germans had no chance to react, really. There was little fighting. They'd be shell-shocked. They'd be utterly, well, dazed and dazed and confused, wouldn't they? Yeah, and in most places, the infantry smashed through the German lines. How did the tanks perform? Well, the tanks are broadly successful, but they were a limited-use weapon of, of, of war. The deadly carbon monoxide gas, coupled with the noxious petrol fumes emanating from the engine, and all blended with the acrid cordite smoke from the guns, created a cocktail of misery for the crew in their randomly... Heaving tanks. I bet they were heaving. The, the crew were heaving. Well, as they well, were. The crew were often nauseous. They felt faint, suffered blinding headaches, and were thoroughly deafened by the relentless noise. It took them to, and very often beyond, the limits of human physical endurance. And soon they had to rest. Uh, yeah, it's just worth remembering this about tanks. Then, uh, what about the uh, the older Lame Blanche, uh, the cavalry? Well, there's still going to be problems deploying them. The the arrangements for them to work in conjunction with the whippets often fell apart as the optimistic seven to eight mile per hour claimed by the light tanks was reduced to about three mile per hour across open country, even without shell holes and trenches. Wouldn't that leave the whippets left miles behind? 
well, certainly left behind by the faster cavalry, the vision of marauding tanks penetrating deep behind the German lies and causing mayhem was a mirage. The whippet's not that weapon of war, is it? It's 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 a it's a it's a concept for the future, not for for the reality. The, 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 yeah, yeah, I mean, the whippets seem to have more of a future than the cavalry. Because yeah, that, but not much of one. <laughs> when the cavalry went alone. Uh, they're dreadfully vulnerable to machine guns and, and they did indeed suffer heavy casualties. So the whippets are a sign of the future, but they're not there yet. Not there yet. Right, got it. Uh, so what about the, the, how did the Canadians and the Australians do? Well, they had an, an, an alloyed, alloyed, an alloyed success. There was hard fighting in places, but they achieved nearly all their objectives. Yeah, that's true. Uh, even when the infantry went beyond the range of their field artillery, always a problem. We talk about a lot about that limiting. The new British tank and infantry tactics come by. So what you've got the, the use of Lewis guns, RAF grade, Stokes mortars. It meant that the, any German machine gun posts, any strong points, they'd be overwhelmed by the sheer firepower deployed against them. This is the thing. Firepower. Trusty Lee Enfield, 15 rounds a minute. Forget it. What we want is Stokes, mortars, heavy machine guns, tanks. That's more like it. Unalloyed. So, unalloyed, yes. An unalloyed success. You see, you've been brooding on that, haven't you? You didn't see any problem with that, did you? No. The advance of the Third Corps north of the Somme had been far less pronounced, and with good reason. Well, we've mentioned some of it. It wasn't a fresh formation. It had been in action. They weren't being kept, especially for an offensive. They were just bloody bog-standard infantry, were they? They'd been through the mill. Yeah, they'd um, suffered a, a spoiler German attack on the 6th of August. Those bloody Germans! Why don't they leave us alone? And as we mentioned earlier, there's also the effects of geography. Right, what do you mean, Gary? Well, what? the ground on which they were uh, attacking between the Somme and the Anker was cut by a series of gullies and spurs. You hate them. Which uh, were most helpful to the defence. Thus, it was not terribly surprising that they were held up on their first objectives. They do, in the end, manage to make an advance of two and a half thousand mi- yards. Not miles. <laughs> Two and a half thousand miles? That's British lads. They've excelled themselves. Two and a half thousand yards. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> now, in previous battles, that might have been regarded as a reasonable achievement. Yeah, but this is uh, this is in contrast because uh, the, the Battle of Amiens had been an incredible success. The rest of the uh, Boer Fourth Army, the Canadians and Australians, they managed some eight miles on a ten-mile front. And the French... Who we're not, we're not talking about. This is the British Ambala. They conform to the South. So what, what are we talking about on that first day in casualties for the, the, for the, the, the Germans? Well, the Germans had some 27,700 casualties of which over 15,000 were prisoners of war. Which means they might as well have been dead, not on the human front, but as far as the war's concerned. Yeah, they'd lost over 400 guns as well. Almost irreplaceable. And large numbers of mortars and machine guns. It was a disaster, wasn't it, by any standards? And you've mentioned Ludendorff. He sums it up, doesn't he? What did he say? Well, he says, August the 8th was the black day of the German army in the history of this war. And what about uh, what about the butcher's bill for our lads then? Well, all of this had been achieved at the loss of only... You're going to say something horrendously high, aren't you? 9,000 British casualties and relatively light French casualties. So probably around 3,000 dead. So it's still painful, isn't it? Now, so great success, great success. Everything's going well. Is, is the future golden now or are there still problems? No, ahead? they still had problems. One worrying feature was the heavy wastage in tanks. 
the Mark V was not really fit for purpose. No, you mean as a an, a an attacking machine that could be used and then uh, and then thrown into battle day after day after day? No, they broke down with incredible frequency. And if the machine endured, then frequently the half poisoned crews could not. The slow-moving monstrosities were also an easy target. You're a slow-moving monstrosity. <laughs> if they did happen to run into any surviving German field artillery. For one reason or another, of the 415 tanks that got into action on the 8th of August, only 145 were ready to resume the attack next morning. So is that uh, 370 were out of action? That's with Pete and Gary. No, because 370 would mean there was only 45. It's 270. Oh, yeah. Maths with Gary. Now, furthermore, the advance of eight miles, that engendered its own problems. Firstly, and most importantly... Ah, I know what you're going to say. I know. Please, sir, please, can, can I say this one? Go on. The artillery was left miles behind. And although the field artillery was put swiftly on the move, uh, there's one sort of artillery you can't move quickly. What's that, Gary? Well, heavy artillery. And, and that's really important for counter-battery fire. And that takes days to bring forward and prepare for action. What about logistics, our favourite subject, or rather Rob Thompson's favourite subject? Well, again, the problems are are also intense. The British lines of communications now effectively ended some eight miles behind the new front line, uh, and all the ammunition, shells, fuel, food, water and ancillary supplies that the infantry, artillery and tanks would need had to be got forward. Now, there's other problems of, 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 of command control and logistics. Uh, no one knew exactly where any of the units were. The headquarters, where are they? Telephone lines, they've been rushed forward, but uh, they're, they're, they're open to, to dislocation uh, or being cut. There's a, there's a confusion. Uh, uh, well, you know, technology, it really has advanced during the Great War. But do you think it's achieved its object of uh, allowing proper communications? No, it's still uh, haphazard and in some cases non-existent. So uh, the, the, altogether, it, it, it's, it's, you know, we're going into the 9th of August. Uh, the, there's worrying signs. Yet... Good news, Gary. Well, if you're British, it's good news. Uh, the, the Fourth Army still, despite all these problems, manages to, to advance three miles. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, while the British were disorganised, the Germans were actually in a far worse situation. They had no proper defence lines or battle zone behind them. We mentioned they hadn't prepared them, had they? 10th of August, though, the law of diminishing returns is setting in, isn't it? The 4th Army was weakening as it fights its way forward, and there was just one fresh British division added to their strength. Uh, What about the Germans? Well, the Germans were now being strongly reinforced despite the best efforts of the RAF. So the bombing wasn't actually cutting off the battlefield, was it? The interdiction attempts, as as we discussed earlier. Uh, So what sort of scale of reinforcements are being moved up? Well, on the 8th of August, six new German divisions were moved up, three more appeared on the 9th of August, and another four on the 10th of August. That's uh, 13. So the, the, any Allied superiority of numbers has gone. Uh, and the advances come to a shuddering halt when they encounter the trenches that have been the German front lines way back in February 1917, i.e. before they'd withdrawn to the Hindenburg line, their old front line, the old front line. Um, now, these trenches wouldn't have been a problem to the uh, new British all-arms tactics, uh, but for what? 
Well, as we've seen, the 4th Army was in no fit state to deploy those tactics. The artillery in chaos and the tanks mostly out of action. Now, for a while, it looks like the 4th Army, the British High Command, they're going to, well, the Allied High Command, are going to repeat all the mistakes of the past as the offensive stalls on the 10th and 11th of August. Uh, what's Rawlinson doing? Well, Rawlinson recognised that 4th Army had lost their momentum and that further attacks would be to no avail. Uh, and it was his opinion that they should close down the offensive in their area and allow the neighbouring 3rd Army to pick up the baton just to the north in front of Albert. A switch of front, in other words, yeah. yeah. And, and that's possible because every army has enough guns to launch an offensive, uh, unlike the old days where you had to move the guns. That's crucial. What does Foch want to do? Well, Foch, he wants to press on. Press on! Press on! And he issued directives demanding, requiring a continuation of the advance by 4th Army. And at first, Haig seems to accept this. Uh, what happens then, though? Well, he has a series of meetings, not only with Rawlinson, but also with Curry and Monash. And after these meetings, Haig changed his mind and proposed the alternative of the Third Army attack. So the, the Albert effect. So he, he's fallen in with Rawlinson and his core commanders. Uh, what, what's the, the idea being that the Fourth Army would only attack again when they were properly prepared and could deploy the full panoply, if you like, of the British new tactics? Um, in a way, this is a crucial point. Haig has the final piece in the battle tactics that were to win the war. It's not only how to prepare attack, but when to stop attacking and attack elsewhere, whilst at the same time properly preparing to resume a renewed attack when the time was right. <laughs> the time was right for the British and wrong for the Germans. Uh, so that, he gets this in his head, and Haig has this in his head. What happens? Well, he goes to confront Foch, who took considerable umbrage at what he considered backsliding. Uh, do the British have any uh, previous for backsliding? Uh, just a bit. Now, Foch first tried to bully and then order Haig to make the attack at once. But he soon found that he did not command Haig. His powers were by agreement and Haig still answered first of all to the British government. Now, this is interesting, but in reality, though, and Foss soon comes to appreciate it, Haig, by launching an attack with Third Army, was still falling in with Foss's higher agenda to relentlessly hound the German army till it fell apart at the seams. And this would lead, ultimately, to the uh, four battles in four days in September, which we've talked about before. Uh, so when does the Battle of Amiens come to a formal end? Well... In effect, it's the 11th of August, 1918. So what have the British achieved? Well, they'd made a total of adv advance of about 12 miles, which is somewhat less than the 2,500 miles you said. Yes. Uh, but it's crucial to Disappointing. grasp <laughs> that the real importance lay in the damage done to the German army rather than the acquisition of meaningless land. Yeah, they cleared a bit of space in front of uh, Amiens uh, 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 communications centre, but... Uh, the, the land itself isn't the value, it's the, the, it's the damage. And what damage had the German army suffered? Well, although the British had lost some 22,000 casualties and the French around 24,000... I find that interesting. We're, always remember the French role. Uh, I'm not sure about that statistic, but one thing is the French would have been fighting hard once the battle started to the uh, south. Uh, so what's the German figure then? Well, they had been estimated to have lost between 48,000 and 75,000 casualties. 
of which 18,550 were taken prisoner by the British and a further 11,373 by the French. Wow. wow. So the British and French armies, they're suffering heavy, heavy casualties. That's fair to say. Uh, the German army, well, in a, it's bleeding to death by now, isn't it? It's, uh, and this has set the pattern of, of the war. Was it set at Amiens or was it set at the Second Battle of the Marne? That's for historians to decide. The French had played their huge part with the Second Battle of the Marne. But this is a real blow. It's an important battle. And I think it represents the, the time when British really grasped the all-arms battle. And that crucial bit we mentioned at the end, when to stop and shift the axis of the offensive. When to stop is important, Pete. Just stop. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?